Good to be in the Lord's house today, amen? I'm not going to ask you if you'd rather be somewhere else. You're here. So I'm going to assume that means you'd rather be here. And uh, for us to hear from God and what he wants to say to us as we've already sung and worshipped him, I want us to look at the word. And these next three messages out of the Gospel of Mark, out of the Servant King series, are very important because they all tie together. This happens in a very concise period of time. And uh, I want us to look at Mark 11, 12 through 14 and verses 20 and 21 on the cursing of the fig tree. The cursing of the fig tree. If you'll notice in your notes, if you've uh, opened them in the app or on the Facebook page, uh, the Zondervan Pictorial Encyclopedia gives a good context for this message. In the East, the fig tree produces two definite crops of figs per season. Winter figs in May and June, summer figs in August and September. Sometimes the crops overlap and it is possible to pick figs nine or ten months of the year. This was during the Passover, April, and the tree should have borne early, ripe figs. Now before uh, we read the scripture starting in verse 12, uh, we had a fig tree. Uh, when I was growing up, wasn't much. It was really was like a fig shrub. Uh, it never got above this high, but that thing was like a fig tree on steroids. And my mother loved figs. I do not like figs. My mother loved figs, and so every year I'd go out and pick figs, put them in a bucket, and she would make fig preserves. When she died, we had enough fig preserves to feed every third world country in the world. I mean, they were everywhere. And she'd go, go over and take it to the Salibas, go take it to the Kings, go take it to the Broadduses. And I could see their faces like, I didn't eat the last jar she gave me. I mean, they're just looking at why we got all these figs. I just don't like figs. But, but if you lived in this time in, in the first century, figs were a staple fruit because you could literally find them almost year-round. And in a people that were impoverished and lived at a, at a level of hunger that most of us do not understand, to see a fig tree would have been something significant that said, ah, I've got a little something to eat today. So let's look at chapter 11 and verse 12. On the next day, this is after he has left the temple and uh, cleaned out the money changers, when they had left Bethany, he became hungry. And seeing at a distance the fig tree and leaf, that simply means that there would have been something small and edible on that tree because he saw the leaves. He went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. He said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. It's good for the disciples to be listening. They had just left the temple compound. They've seen Jesus drive the money changers out of the temple, actually out of the court of the Gentiles. In other words, they had set up shop in a bazaar and were selling things in the one place that a Gentile could come at that time and find, about, find out about Jehovah God. And so they had turned it into this materialistic, corrupt system of making money. Verse 20, as they were passing by in the morning, this is the next day, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up and being reminded 
remember they were listening, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered, saying to them, have faith in God. Interesting response to Peter's response to what Jesus did. That word withered means that there's no flow, no sap, that the fig tree overnight had died. It was useless. And it was like the religion of Israel at the time. They had form, they had ritual, but they had no power. Their religion had become powerless because it was no longer connected with Jehovah God. You see, the temple and the fig tree had something in common. They were good for nothing. They were good for nothing. The temple had long since moved away from worshiping Jehovah. Oh yes, there were sacrifices, there were rituals, but they had long since moved away from the true worship of Jehovah because if they had been worshiping Jehovah when his son showed up, they would have recognized him, but they didn't. Now this is one of the most difficult and complex passages in all of scripture because it's hard because Jesus does something here that he doesn't do anywhere else. Most of the time when you read scripture, when Jesus is talking to the people, he's comforting them. But when he deals with the Pharisees and the hierarchy, he, he, he disturbs them. I, I believe you see in the fig tree, in the mountain that is moved by faith, and in the next statement about forgiveness, you see a flow in this story, in this chapter, that is unique and we can't miss it. We can't miss what God's trying to say to us. By the way, this is the last of 18 miracles in the book of Mark. There have been 18 miracles as we've walked through the book of Mark, but now this is the last miracle, and here's the miracle explained. Jesus drives home what hypocrisy does to his heart. So the only miracle that Jesus pronounced judgment and condemnation on anything is this miracle. And he judges and pronounces judgment on a fig tree. Back up to verse 11. Jesus entered Jerusalem and came into the temple and after looking around at everything, so he's evaluating, he's checking out what he's seeing, what's going on, he left for Bethany with the twelve since it was already late. So here's the Son of God. Here's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Here's the one who spoke things into existence. He was the one that was there at creation. He has now manifested himself as all man and all God. And he comes to the Temple Mount, the place where his father is to be worshipped, and he does an inspection tour. He's looking around and he's Kind of, you, you know, there are people everywhere. The Passover is coming. And so it's crowded. But he doesn't let the crowd interfere with what he's trying to look at and trying to notice. This is supposed to be the center of the nation, the center of Jerusalem, the center of true worship. And he did not find what he was looking for. Think about it. The Son of God showed up in a place that was supposed to be dedicated solely for the worship of God and couldn't find anybody worshiping. 
There was nobody doing what they were supposed to be doing. So he does this inspection tour, and when it says he looked around at everything, that's in the sense of taking a panoramic view. If you got one of those things on your phone where you can take that panoramic picture and you start here and you kind of slide and you look around and you see everything that's going on around you, does that ever make you dizzy when you're doing that? I mean, just sit there and go, well, just, just take four pictures and let me look at it. Don't make me scroll here because I move my finger and it goes back to the main one. Jesus is looking all the way around. He's looking at everything, at everyone, all that is going on, checking it and evaluating it by what the Scripture says is supposed to be going on on the Temple Mount. He's there to discern the depth of their devotion. He's checking their motives. Here's what he's doing. He wants to know the why behind the what. See, a lot of people, when they're checking out a church, they say, what do you do? The better question is, why do you do it? Because a church can do a lot of things, and a Christian can do a lot of things, but at the end of the day, it's not what we do, it's why we do it that gives validity to what we do, or it invalidates what we do. So this tree is symbolic of the nation of Israel. The leaves are a picture of external religion without relationship. In other words, the, the tree's being hypocritical. And the fruit that he's looking for is the outward expression of the inward nature, that, that he's looking for evidence of life in this fig tree, that it is bearing fruit like it's supposed to, and he finds none. The characteristic of a fig tree is that it can bear fruit and bear figs before there's foliage. But if there are leaves, you should expect some fruit. So look at how he uncovers the hypocrisy. Verse 11, he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. So the tree was bearing a false witness. It was says the witness of the tree from a distance was, I'm bearing fruit. I'm living up to my purpose. I'm living up to my calling. But the reality was it was a false profession. It had leaves, but no life. The immediate application was Israel in the first century who had the law and the prophets, but weren't living out any of it except through ritual. And so the Lord pronounces a death on this tree, a sentence of death on this tree. He cursed the fig tree, not for being barren, but for bearing a false witness. He did not curse the tree because it was barren. He cursed it because he came looking for something to eat, and that tree gave an image or a perception that it would provide him with what he was looking for, and he found none, so the tree was bearing false witness. There was no evidence of this tree having any life in it, although it had leaves. You know, Jesus did the same thing in the book of Revelation. He shows up and he starts walking among the seven churches in Revelation. And in five of the seven, he finds something wrong with them. He goes to examine the churches to see if the churches are doing what they have been put in those cities to do. 
And in five of them, he says, yeah, you got some good things about you, but you need to change this, or you need to stop this, or you need to reverse your direction in this area, or repent or else I will remove my lampstand from you. I will write Ichabod on your church. Now that is important for us 2,000 years later, that Jesus is still walking among his church. He's evaluating, he's looking, he's examining, he's inspecting to see if we are actually doing what the name church means, the ecclesia, the body of Christ. If we are acting like the church, if we are living out Christ's likeness in our life, what Jesus is saying is, I'm going to look for a church that looks like me. And we've got way too many churches that are trying to look Baptist or charismatic or Pentecostal or Methodist or Presbyterian or Catholic, and a lot of them don't look like him. And if somebody picked up a Bible in a motel room and read the Gospels and showed up in many churches today, they would look at that Bible and look at the church and say, what in the world do these two things have to do with each other? Because there's nothing going on here that looks like him. That life is evident. That life is being revealed. You want to know how seriously God takes hypocrisy? Here's your sign. He curses it. Jesus cursed the hypocrisy of this tree. All the history of Israel was in preparation for Messiah. And when he showed up, they had all the bells and whistles. They had all the ceremonies. But when the Messiah was there, they missed him. And the reason this is important is the message of the New Testament is God comes looking for fruit in our lives, that the believer is known by the fruit of his life. Matthew 7, 16, you will know them by their fruit. Luke 3, 8, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Luke 13 gives us a parable of the fruitless fig tree that the owner said, cut it down. It's taking up ground. Galatians talks about the fruit of the Spirit. So here they are. Jesus has come looking for fruit. He comes by the next morning, and Peter, sharp as a tack. <laughs> Look, Jesus, what you said should happen actually happened. Isn't that amazing? That what Jesus said would happen would happen. And so Jesus cursed the fig tree, and he said, Rabbi, look, the fig tree where, which you curse has withered. Jesus didn't even answer Peter. It's like Peter when I say something, don't be surprised that it comes to pass. When I make a pronouncement, it's going to come true because it's going to come from the lips of God into your ears. And so when I say something is going to happen, it's going to happen. So here's the thing. We have gotten to live in such a way in our lives that now we really don't believe he's coming back. But I want to tell you, if he can kill a fig tree overnight, he can come back today. There's nothing he can't do. There's no promise he will not fulfill. He is faithful to his word. So let's look at some things that are going on here. First of all, there was profession without possession. 
There was profession without possession. All the signs indicated it was going to bear fruit, that it was healthy, but it was not. Now, think of the context. He's just left the Temple Mount. He's done this inspection tour of the Temple Mount and of the worship and the religion that's going on. And Caiaphas, the high priest, and, and all the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin, they had, they had all their ducks in a row. I mean, they were ready for the hundreds of thousands of people to come in for the Passover. They had their offerings right. They had their feasts right. They knew what was an unblemished animal. They, they knew how to prepare people to get ready to come into the Temple Mount. I mean, they had this system organized. But think about it. We are hours away from the celebration of the Passover. And remember, a lamb was slain at Passover and the blood sprinkled over the doorposts so that the angel of death would pass over that home on the night when Israel was delivered from Egypt. Now, the one sufficient all eternal Passover lamb has shown up to shed his blood so that we could be delivered from sin and they killed the lamb that came to deliver them. They took him to a cross and they killed him. The one hope that they had, they rejected. They had the temple, they had the ceremonies, they had the holy days, they had the offerings. They had everything but the presence of God. Terry and I had uh, a late breakfast yesterday with Dan Robinson and his wife Kay. Kay was the widow of uh, Ron Dunn, and we spent about two hours with them and, and uh, just talking and praying. And, and Dan's a pastor of a small church in, in Highlands, North Carolina, and he just leaned over the table and he said, Michael, what we need is the presence of God in our church. And you know, without the presence of God, we should come here and we shouldn't even watch a streaming service. If there's no presence of God, why would we waste our time? I mean, if we're just here to check the box and to go through the motions, we are on the same level with this fig tree and with the nation of Israel, which God cursed in this moment. So there's the sin of profession without possession. Oh, we know the one true God, and when he stood right in front of him, they didn't know him. So you can say you know God and know in your heart you don't really know him. In fact, resent if he asks you to do anything. Secondly, the sin of the tree became its punishment. The sin of the tree became its punishment. The failure to fulfill its purpose, God said, if you're not going to fulfill your purpose, I'll make it where you can't. The punishment for emptiness is emptiness. First it was nothing but leaves, and now it's nothing but dead limbs. Why? Because the facade of man-centered, self-satisfying, self-glorifying religion is empty. That's why you can go in some places and you just walk out and go, man, I tell you what, I don't know where God was, but he wasn't in the room I was in. And sometimes you can walk in a place and you can just sense the presence of God. 
By the way, we should walk into every place of worship and sense the presence of God. And if we don't, we don't need to look at anybody else but ourselves first. We need to look at ourselves. We need to look in a mirror first and say, God, am I not sensing the presence of God because I'm hypocritically saying I'm one thing at church on Sunday, but I'm something else the other six days of the week. Never again would God dwell in a building. This is not the house of God. This is concrete and steel and cloth and carpet and air conditioning and a roof. You are the house of God. And people get to uptight about, you know, how are we treating the house of God? Hey, look in the mirror. How are you treating the house of God? You're the house of God. You're where the Spirit of Christ dwells. And so this building cannot be hypocritical. It's just a building. But we can be hypocritical if we make a profession that is false and then find out that we're going to be punished for it. Most studies that are going on right now say that 20% to maybe 25% of churches in America will never, ever again reopen after COVID. 25% of churches, you're talking about tens and tens and tens of thousands of churches. But can I be honest with you? Some of them weren't doing anything anyway. You know, if a church is not going to be a church, it shouldn't reopen. Quite honestly, I mean, if you just want my humble and accurate opinion, I mean, if, if a church is not going to act like a church, live like a church, be like the church, be a light to the world, be salt in the world, if a church is just going to be people gathering together and singing kumbaya and, and making sure everything's out in time to go to lunch, why should we even gather? Jesus is looking. He condemns the ones who condemned him. Do we understand that Jesus is still walking among the church? Do we understand, can you and I get it in our heads that before you got up and got dressed this morning, Jesus was planning by his spirit to be in this room and to evaluate our worship. He's evaluating our giving. He's evaluating our serving. He's evaluating our love. He's evaluating our faith. He's evaluating our forgiveness. He's examining what we do and why we do it. And religion is dead. Religion is powerless. It paints the wrong picture of the one true God. Tozer said, religion has accepted the monstrous heresy that noise, size, activity, and bluster make a man dear to God. This noise makes a person dear to God. Leonard Ravenhill, who was a 20th century prophet, and you need to listen to this quote very carefully. Those who go to church once a week and pay your tithes and sing in the choir, that kind of Christianity is a farce if that is the limit of our Christian service and the extent of our passion. 
What Ravenhill said was, if it's not working outside this wall, it's a farce that we're just putting on a front. And Jesus is calling the church today and me and you to what he called the church to 2,000 years ago. Repent. Walk with God. Be in fellowship with him. He's looking for fresh life, for prayer, for power. And then the sign of dead religion is selfishness. Is selfishness. You know, I, I, I've, I've been in church a long time, and I've been in ministry a long time. And, and I can tell you, I have watched churches fight and split over the dumbest things that, that you wouldn't think that the people of God, saved by the grace of God, with the Holy Spirit living inside of them, would ever do some of the things that we do. You know, I mean, this is preacher stories, but they're all true because I know some churches in Mississippi this happened in. The church split because they couldn't decide which side of the room the organ and the piano would be on. And so they had a vote. Churches split over the color of the carpet. I went to visit a church several years ago in New England where the, the house right behind that church is where George Whitfield died, one of the great leaders of the First Great Awakening who could preach on a hilltop and be heard by 10,000 people with no amplification system. He is buried under that church. And so we got in, the church was buried, it took us forever to get in, and got in and said, yeah, you can go in, you can go down into the basement and see Whitfield's crypt, and there's one of the former pastors uh, buried there, and, and there's stuff in the foyer of the church. They actually have something of Paul Revere's in their foyer, and, and they have a bone uh, out of somebody's arm. I mean, it's, it's weird, the stuff they've got out there. They've got this little mausoleum-looking thing uh, out, out in the foyer. But George Whitfield is buried in that place, and so I just thought, you know, I wonder what God's doing in this church now. So I started looking around, and the first three rows on this side and the first three rows on this side had hymnals and plastic flowers stored in them. I mean, they were filled with junk, just plastic flowers everywhere. So if you wanted to say, man, I want to get at the front, I want to see where the action's going on, you had to move some dead plastic flowers out of the seat to go sit there. So then I picked up their bulletin. This is what the bulletin said. A word from your pastor. After much discussion and several meetings, we believe that for the unity of the church, those of you who voted for worship at 9 o'clock and those of you for worship at 10 o'clock we believe we have reached a compromise and we will have worship at 9.30. Now this room seats about 900. They're running about 20. Why do they even care when they're meeting? How about cleaning the church up and calling a prayer meeting and asking God to forgive us that in this pulpit, that same pulpit's still there, on this platform, one of the greatest preachers in American history, one of the leaders of the Great Awakening preached, and if he was alive today, he wouldn't darken the door of this place. But they have their heritage 
and their history. And so what it's become for many is selfish. It's just become selfish. Instead of trying to seek sanctification in the life of Christ and being set apart, we make church about us. And so the reason that 9,000, 10,000 Southern Baptist churches haven't baptized anybody in a year for several years, not even children that grow up in their own church, the fact that churches are closing their doors every day, that there will be hundreds of churches today that will close their doors for the last time, and just an empty building will rot and decay and be useless for the kingdom. The fact that 50 pastors a day are leaving the ministry every day of the week. How do you explain that? I can. Paul said it. They have a form of godliness without the power. They have a form of godliness without the power. Worship has become selfish in too many churches and sometimes individual Christians, which is we make up the church, are like the temple and the fig tree. We're guilty of false advertising. We're guilty of false advertising. The word says church, which should mean something that looks like Jesus. And when a lost person walks into some churches, they don't feel welcome. They don't feel wanted. They don't feel loved. And if that's what's happening, then I would say that Jesus is in the process of removing his presence from that church, no matter what they say. The purpose of the church is to bear fruit, not keep up appearances. Not keep up appearances. Jesus was pronouncing what was already a reality. Let me give you some quick references. Isaiah 34, 4, Jeremiah 8, 13, Jeremiah 29, 17, Hosea 2, 12, Micah 7, verses 1 through 6. All likened Israel. These are all the prophets speaking. All likened Israel to a faithless fig tree. Why were they a faithless faithless fig tree? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because they had forgotten their calling. Let me tell you what the call, this is what the straight and narrow road looks like as opposed to every detour that a church can take and miss why God has them there. God put us on 2201 Whispering Pines for a reason. And for some of us, it's not the reason that we think it is. So this is why Israel forgot their calling. Number one, they depended on political alliances with other nations. You see this through their history. God says, I'm going to protect you. I'm going to be your king. I'm going to be in charge. I'm going to deliver you. He delivered them from Egypt. But then they got kings who said, oh, if we make an alliance with Syria, if we make an alliance with Egypt, if we make an alliance with this nation or that nation, that will make us powerful. Listen, you start looking to anyone other than God for power and you lose power. It is the Lord that is the power of the church. Secondly, they put their faith in a system and rejected the Savior. So they're sitting in there checking the box. We did this exactly like it says we're supposed to do it in Leviticus. We did this sacrifice exactly like we're supposed to do it. We did what everything. They went through the system, but they forgot the reason. And they missed the Savior. 
Third one is a little close to home, especially in this year. They played with politicians and politics to gain favor for their cause or to get politicians to look the other way. So what did Israel do? Caiaphas knew how to play Pilate, and Pilate knew how to play Caiaphas. And if you can't figure out a 2020 application to that, I'm really sorry. But when you start playing up to the political people so that you can gain favor or so that they will ignore you, you have put them on the throne of your heart and not the Lord Jesus. Because God did not come to die for politics. He came to die for prostitutes and sinners. And if we miss that, we miss everything. Everything. Fourthly, they rejected the prophets who called them to repentance. Ultimately, the temple and the system had nothing to do with God. They were barren. They were fruitless. They had all the stuff. And that's why Jesus said, this temple is going to get torn down one day. There is no sacrificial system in Judaism today. It's gone. It's a whole nother thing that's going on in Judaism today because Jesus, by the way, the day that Jesus died and rose, the sacrificial system became totally unnecessary because it was all pointing to him in the first place. And he fulfilled everything about the sacrificial system. All of the feasts pointed to him. All of the special days pointed to him. When he came, no need for that anymore. Eventually, and this is the big one, they not only rejected the Son of God. In the book of Acts, they rejected the Spirit of God. So they tried to get people to lie that somebody had stolen the body of Jesus, that he had not really been raised from the dead, and when 3,000 people were saved on the day of Pentecost and many came to faith in Christ and thousands upon thousands in the weeks following came to Christ, they rejected it, took Peter and John in and told them to be quiet. Quit talking about Jesus. So they rejected the Son of God, but they also rejected the evidence that the Spirit of God had come upon God's people. You see, if you've got your notes, Israel was a barren fig tree, and the leaves only covered its nakedness. The magnificence of the temple and its ceremonies hid the fact that Israel had not brought forth the fruit of righteousness demanded by God. Listen, it's not too much to ask a fig tree to produce figs. You know, we got a lot of pecan trees in southwest Georgia that have survived multiple storms. We got a lot of pecan trees in southwest Georgia. I have never gone to a pecan tree and said, I'm looking for almonds. Not one time. I've never gone to a peach tree. A lot of peach trees in Georgia. I've never gone to a peach tree and said, I'm looking for tangerines. Why? Because a tree produces in kind with its nature. And so a peach tree is going to produce peaches. A fig tree is going to produce figs. But it's not being legalistic to ask a Christian to produce fruit in keeping with righteousness. 
That's not being legalistic. That's just saying, if I say that I am a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ, then people ought to be able to look at me and say, yep, I see it. I see it. You see, if we are fruitless, we are useless as far as the kingdom is concerned. Now, the next message next week, we're going to go into the details about what it means to have faith in God and speaking to a mountain. But here's what having faith in God is not. It's not religion. It's not works. It's not sincerity. It's not animal sacrifices. Having faith in God is believing what God said about his son. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. And so if I want to please God, I need to look at what it means to look like Jesus in my living. You see, the work of God is a work of faith. It overcomes sin and self. It is sustained by grace and characterized by forgiveness. So let me ask a question before we pray. As God is moving through this service and in my heart and in your heart today, as he looks at our lives today, is our life an invitation to get to know God? As people see us go around in our community. Is our life an invitation to get to know God? Do they see evidences of the fruit of the Spirit in our lives? Do they see evidences of the fruit that is in keeping with repentance in our lives? You see, Jesus is examining, and this is what James talks about. When you look in the mirror, if the mirror says, whew, man, you need to comb your hair and, and you, you need to get fixed up a little bit before you go out and you walk away and don't do it, something's wrong. You see, every worship service is an encounter with the living God for me to say, now, Lord, this is what I see, but what do you see? I think I'm okay, but as you look for fruit in my life, are you just seeing a lot of leaves, a lot of busyness, a lot of activity, or are you seeing fruit that is in keeping with the character and the nature of Jesus Christ? Let's pray together. If you're here today, you, you may have religion. You may have been baptized. You may have joined a church. But as you look in your heart, are you giving evidence of the fruit of the Spirit in your life? Or is it one witness in church and a different witness away from church? Today you can be saved. You can have a genuine relationship with Jesus Christ. In the moment when you leave, I want to invite you to go to the Next Steps desk, which is right outside these doors, and find one of our staff or one of our volunteers and say, I need to talk to somebody. 
about a personal relationship with Jesus. I need to know that I know that I'm not just religious, but that I love the Lord. The Jews were religious. I mean, they were incredibly religious. They just had forgotten to love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength and love their neighbors themselves. They kept the rules, but they didn't have a righteous relationship. You could be saved today. If you need to talk to someone, if you need somebody to pray with you, we'd be glad to do that for you today. But as we walk in and out of this building week after week in this new paradigm that we're in, let's make sure that what we're showing to this community and what we're showing to our lost friends and relatives and neighbors is the life of Christ. It's real easy right now to get diverted and detoured into other things. But if you die today, none of those other things will matter. The only thing that lasts past this life is the Word of God and the souls of men and women. That's all. That's all that's going to be in heaven is the Word of God and the souls of men and women. So that's what we need to give ourselves to. And say, Lord, when you come examining my life, I don't want to be barren. I don't want to be hypocritical. I want to be in tune with you. Father, take your word and may the seed bear fruit. In Jesus' name, amen.